Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to welcome you today to another fun show where we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. One of the things that I like to do is um, every few months kind of stop and take stock of what's going on in the broadband arena, what kind of developments, what's, uh, what seems to be going right, what seems to be having its challenges and so forth. So we're able to take a pulse of, of these changes and how we can adjust and, and perform to those. Uh, the, the broadband world is happening and it's changing so quickly that it's hard to get a grip. You know, if you talk to some broadband project folks, they'll tell you that they're so deep into, uh, you know, getting these networks out and getting people connected and driving broadband adoption that they don't have time sometimes to stop and step back and kind of look at the world, the broadband world around them. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to really take a close look at um, at some of the things that are that are working very well uh, in this broadband arena and how things can improve in in others. And uh, to to help get a, a picture of this, I asked a uh, colleague whom I've known for a while, uh, Norm Jackness, who is an industry watcher, who is a fellow at the Intelligent Communities Forum and all-around public and private industry expert who, who watches where things are going and kind of helps people get a, a handle on what's coming up and what to do about some of those upcoming changes. So, Norm, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Great show. Sure. So let's start with a little bit about um, your, you know, your expertise and where that dovetails with um, Intelligent Communities uh, Forum, because both you and the organization have done a lot of industry watching and, and also industry shaping. Uh, yes. Well, I think uh, both of us actually have, have had quite a history with uh, broadband and the Internet going back all way. Um, I'll, I'll briefly describe my own background. Um, uh, for the last five years, uh, before this year, I was uh, at Cisco Systems uh, at their sort of strategic think tank, helping people figure out um, sort of where technology was going and uh, how they could best use it. Um, and uh, before that, I was uh, chief information officer uh, and an official in Westchester County, New York, where we built out one of the first um, countywide broadband uh, efforts um, in conjunction with a private partner. Um, at the time, we started with 1,200 miles of um, uh, gigabit uh, backbone. It's uh, a lot more than that now. Uh, and I was also, even before that, uh, before that, I was in charge of software development for a, a big computer company that's since been taken over. But we uh, we were involved in the early applications of the internet. In fact, I was uh, one of the co-founders of uh, the regional internet uh, group. So I've been involved with this for a while. ICF has been doing what uh, their effort for, gosh, I think at least 15 years now. Uh, they're they're best known for their annual awards for the most intelligent uh, 21, then top seven, then the most intelligent community in the world. Um, and they've been really tracking sort of how people have been successful or not with broadband projects, and even when they had broadband, how they've been successful or not. I think mm -hmm. one of the things is. I think one of the things that's really important that they've learned, and, and it's a, I also learned the same thing somewhat independently, is that broadband is important, but it's broadband when combined with community building that really makes a success. And we can go into that, a little bit of what that means. Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, but that's sort of that, that's kind of I think the unique thing is they're going out. They're not just looking to communities around the world that have uh, figured out how to get broadband but figured out how to use it to make a big impact on the lives of the people who live in that area. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess in a very broad term, where is the Internet? Where is broadband? I guess I should start with there, which in, in, for our purposes, we're talking about networks being specifically developed to bring fast, uh, super fast speeds, Internet access speeds into communities. And it's not about 
uh, I would say, the commercial or the entertainment aspects of uh, this Internet access that we talk about here on the show, but we're talking about uh, bringing in broadband to change how uh, communities develop. And I think that's really what dovetails with your mission. So in a general sense, where do you see us in broadband? What's, what's broadband doing now for, for communities? We can okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I thought the question was sort of what the status is of broadband. I guess you know, you've been dealing with that. And as you well know, it's, it's spotty. There are places that are really ahead of the game and those that are still struggling. Uh, and then there are those that give a lot of lip service and don't do anything. But in terms of the places... <laughs> In, in terms of places that actually have it, um, uh, they're doing all sorts of uh, of interesting things. Um, clearly, I, you know, you're familiar with the story in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. of how building up their economic development, but it, uh, efforts around broadband. But it's more than that. They've actually been uh, building their community, and so, for example, even the library is very much a part of this whole new um, gigabit world that they're building there. Um, and, and those folks are helping redefine what libraries mean in the 21st century when you have broadband. Um, I think you, you're beginning to see a lot more uh, telemedicine now. Um, but surely the, uh, uh, the regulations and the insurance company attitudes that have prevented the rapid adoption of telemedicine are, are changing. Uh, so I think we're going to see a lot more of that, um, particularly you know as the Affordable Care Act goes forward and other changes occur in the healthcare industry, um, and so we're beginning to see that. By the way, we've seen that elsewhere in the world. I mean, you know, one of the things we should talk about. I, I'm assuming that most of our audience is American, maybe not all of it, but I think probably most of it is. Most of but it the is. Rest, yeah. The the rest of the world has has um, really um, done a lot of interesting things. I, I remember it's got a couple of years ago. The fellow who was uh, uh, speaking to the fellow who was in charge of telemedicine for the British National Health Service in Scotland, and you know they have a, a combination of cities like Glasgow and, and Edinburgh, but also some pretty significant rural areas, and then they have this population of people who are out there in the North Sea on oil platforms, uh, and uh, you know you you can't afford to have these folks come back and forth by helicopter all the time, uh, you know for for checkups. And so he deployed the use of broadband um, in order to provide telehealth. Um, and, and not only that, but what was really clever about it was he said, this establishes a whole new way of thinking about the delivery of medicine, of changing the roles that are feasible. Um, and so, you know, you really can have now a, a doctor who is spending all of his or her time as a diagnostician because they can be available to consult uh, on cases that are widely spread apart. They don't have to mix up their practice with things that require lower-level skills when you have broadband. So he was able to almost redefine the nature of medical practice. So you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of that all over the world. Now I've got great rural examples, too, which we'll get to a little bit later, I hope. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. Is In your mind, is broadband a change agent Meaning, you know, does it impact, the, uh, you know, profound changes in how individuals or communities do things? And because or if, if you see it that way, how do people take advantage of it in that, um, in that role? Because, I mean, you, they can either sit by and passively watch this technology roll in or they can proactively try to... I don't know, get a handle on it, whatever. What's, what's your take on that? Uh, I, I do definitely think it's a change agent. Um, and I, but I think people have to step back a little bit. Um, and, and, and maybe you and I can just take, you know, 30 seconds to step back and think about where we are. Um, we talk about broadband and we talk about the Internet as if it's a mature technology. It's not. Um, I sort of like to describe where we are as it's, uh, we're roughly equivalent to where the phone system was in 1926, which was, what, 50 years, maybe mm-hmm. whatever, it's after the phone was invented. And, and, you know, people thought, oh, well, we've got everything. You know, everything that's going to happen is going to happen. Um, and obviously, uh, there were significant changes. So the reality is that the Internet isn't really uh, quite ubiquitous. We don't have broadband everywhere. We don't have broadband in an awful lot of places. Um, we don't have the, 
the applications, we, for example, video conferencing, uh, that is available everywhere of high quality so that you don't notice it anymore. And it's actually like having a conversation with somebody who's two feet away from you instead of 200 miles away. Uh, that's not there yet. It's happening. It's going to happen. Um, and, and when it does, it will have an even more dramatic impact on people's lives than we think that the uh, broadband has now. But mm-hmm. uh, we need to be realistic. We're not quite there yet. So um, people aren't seeing as many of these things yet as they might. The other factor, by the way, is behavioral or cultural. I don't know how to describe it. I, I, I use my own grandmother as an example. Um, my grandmother, when you know, when she was alive, um, as an, even a relatively young adult, um, she could make long-distance telephone calls anywhere in the country, actually, for that matter, I suppose, anywhere in the world. Um, but she never got used to the idea. Um, my parents used the telephone for all sorts of things, uh, personal calls, business calls. They took it for granted that it was an okay thing to use. And so there is always this sort of cultural difference and people or expectation difference on the part of people. I think as we get a generation that grows up with broadband and with the communications capabilities that come along with that, including video, that you'll see a change in behavior, and that's going to have an even greater impact as well. So mm-hmm. the real the real interesting impacts are going to be 10, 20 years from now. So we, in some respects, are should consider ourselves as uh, scientists almost, that we're basically, rather, rather than taking things as gospel or the final word, we should look at this more as an evolving technology and we have to, to in essence, create flexible responses to it. Absolutely true, yeah. Yeah, we, we're, we're, well, scientists are only pioneers. We're, we're uh, setting up the patterns of usage. Uh, we're setting up uh, what we think is most important, what's going to happen first. Um, you know, you mentioned before entertainment, and I think that it's worth saying that there's nothing wrong with the entertainment uses of broadband. In some respects, they help pay for the other uses. And, and, and one of the things that we've observed at ICF, and I've observed as well, is that those communities that have a mix of uses supporting their broadband efforts are the ones that are most successful, uh, particularly financially. It's the, the, those, those are the situations where it's harder to argue that there's no return on investment. Now, Chattanooga is a good example. I mean, the Chattanooga mm-hmm. project started out as, as a smart grid project, um, a, a truly smart grid project. I mean, a lot of times people talk about smart grid, they mean, you know, you can talk to your electric utility over the Internet. They actually wanted to have a smart grid that, that managed all of the electricity, was able to reroute electricity the same way you can reroute packets on the Internet. Um, and, and they realized once they, you know, started doing this that, why, why don't we also make this available to people? And so we can share the costs over multiple large community needs, both the smart grid and communications needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you'll see a, a lot of places where uh, it's the, those multiple uses that uh, really uh, make sense. And if the, one of the multiple uses is entertainment, hey, okay, people need to be entertained too, you know. Right. Well, you know, and, and in some respects, um, you know, I think we have this uh, weird thing about, you know, the, the technology. A lot of folks want to see it as a business and as a business model, and it wants to have uh, business impact, you know, using the technology. But sometimes it seems that there are uh, entertainment uses that eventually evolve into business or quote-unquote serious applications. Like, for example, I had a... Um, uh, I was doing an uh, interview for an article that I'm writing, and I called this guy up uh, who, who um, is with a uh, bank in uh, Missouri, and they're one of the first customers of this gig network that was built by the local electric co-op. And the guy was talking about how he, they, they were using Xboxes for video conferences, like business video conferences. Um, sure because the technology on board a game box or an Xbox, whatever the thing is, you can tell I'm not a gamer, um, but the technology is so sophisticated, but because it's mass-produced, the technology is so cheap that they can go out and get a couple of $500 Xboxes and save thousands of dollars to create a video conferencing system as long as the broadband is fast enough for the connection. But it's a totally... Right. 
you know, serious business application built on top of a toy, in essence. Well, that's and, right. Well, I'm, you know, there's, there's this uh, whole notion in the uh, information technology world what's called consumerization of technology, that a lot of the advances have been driven by consumer products, and that, and that has been uh, creeping in. Creeping is actually not the right word. It's much more than creeping. But, but that's been invading the uh, enterprise uh, technology world, uh, and this is just one example. I, they, you know, Xbox stuff has been, and Connect have been used for all sorts of interesting work. Uh, and uh, you're right. That that's you see that, that that happening all over. Now, do you see um, this kind of thing happening specifically in, uh, say, the telemedicine realm? Because yes. if you can get some, you know, a bunch of homes with Xboxes that have the capability to um, uh, to transfer video data then is it a logical step to say, well, we can now create uh, home health monitoring and senior monitoring and, you know, sort of the less critical patient care uh, monitoring activities taken over by consumer goods? Absolutely. You can, in fact, you already, you, you already see it. And it's not necessarily even Xbox. Uh, you, you, there are a lot of applications now on people's smartphones. Uh, and, and you don't need to be a gamer to have a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. Bit, makes it a little bit wider audience, uh, but it's it's uh, absolutely uh, you're, you're you're seeing that now. A lot of people have been buying their own stuff. I mean, all these people who have uh, they're used the, the, either wristbands or their smartphone to track the, their workouts, how much they walk, what they're eating, all that kind of stuff. You know, sooner or later, the medical profession is going to pick up on the fact that these patients are collecting data about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that uh, maybe there's you know there's a way that we can use it. Um, obviously, the the profession is already aware of that. Um, it hasn't quite been embedded into medical practice because you know that's a, a big institutional industry. It's hard to change, but uh, they certainly understand that this is uh, going to help them and and help people. And a lot mm-hmm. of people, by the way, um, a lot of of uh, local uh, governments in this country are still responsible for nursing homes and long-term care and so forth, and uh, people are nevertheless unhappy with that. They don't want to be in a nursing home. Uh, you now have the capability of uh, having people uh, be relatively independent but still being tracked, still be uh, able to be helped if something bad happens. Um, you know, it's interesting. The, there, there was a, in the Northeast, there was a group, a medical group that uh, started using this, um, and they actually did some studies on it and found that the medical outcomes for the seniors who had used this were better. And it wasn't that anything, I mean, some of it was catching, you know, medical problems early, but a lot of it was the, the seniors, who most, a lot of them were living alone, now had somebody that was talking to them once a day or checking up on them. And so they actually got up, they took a shower, they sort of got themselves ready as if they were going to actually have a, a meeting with somebody, mm-hmm. whereas if they hadn't had that contact, they would have been isolated and they would have not actually gone through the effort of getting themselves ready. And it was even that simple stuff uh, of, of having even this virtual contact that uh, helped them uh, with better medical outcomes. Now... So the, the, the planner in me wants to then ask, uh, with, all, with, with the certain level of, um, I guess, porousness in how we look at, you know, the technology, as in it's not locked in stone yet, it's still in evolution, um, how does a community or how does a planner, you know, try to harness this thing? Because it's hard to convince you know, local governments or large institutions or, you know, service providers to, you know, invest a certain amount of money if you're saying that the, the outcomes are totally, not totally, but largely unpredictable because we don't really know what's going to happen in four or five years. How does the person who's tasked with, you know, planning a network like this or planning a grant application or so forth, how do you, how do you deal with this kind of world, this kind of fluidness? Oh, I don't think, actually, I don't think it's true we don't know what's going to happen in the next few years. I just think we don't know how soon some things are going to happen. The, okay. the overall overall trend strikes me as being pretty clear, and we've seen a lot of this. I mean, obviously, the, the, 
the development of higher speed communications and more reliable communications around the world has uh, fed the whole effort at globalization. Um, I mean, just look at the, the, you know, not just sort of the outsourcing, but even the the way that a designer uh, can instantaneously converse with a uh, manufacturing engineer in a foreign country on a product. Um, you know, so you, you already you're seeing a lot of these trends um, already. They're they're just in the early days. That's what I, that was my point. I don't think it's that unpredictable. Now, what particular products will survive? What particular form some of these things will take? Yeah, that's that's the part where you know it depends on a combination of skill and chance and a lot of other things that businesses do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think we certainly can expect a world in which there is an increasing amount of communication globally. Uh-huh. Uh, easier communication, and and you know that has a lot of implications. Um, you know. One of the things that's already beginning to happen is, is this has implications in the economy. Uh, you know, it used to be that to get the kind of scale you needed for global activity, you needed to have a huge multinational corporation. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're still very important. Uh, but we've seen in a variety of ways how, how broadband and the Internet have enabled people around the globe on a uh, on a much more uh, ad hoc basis to collaborate. I mean, you know, the obvious example everybody talks about is Wikipedia, but there are all sorts of other examples that you know you can that people aren't even aware of, that, uh, where you've got a large number of people who can cooperate, um, who can establish business relationships with each other, and you're beginning to see this stuff develop. Um, if you're a an economic development planner, for example, this has got to factor in into the way you do things and the way you think about things. Um, and, and, and a shift from an old industrial model that you have in your mind to a newer uh, network broadband model. And, you know, and actually that was going to be my next question. And when, we shift, when we think in the terms of the economic developer, you know, who often uh, in, in many communities, they become rather intensely or by default the main driver of a broadband network. And in, in, at least as I observe it, and you can tell me if this is wrong or not, but as I observe it, you know, the, the narrative about using broadband for a, a commu- as a communication, I'm sorry, as an economic development tool is often around the, in, in the context of, well, it's, it's a good way to find jobs. It's a good way to apply for jobs. It is a way to entice large companies to move to your area. And it, it becomes like three or four kind of bullet points that are always referenced whenever someone says broadband and economic development. But isn't if your if your intent is to really transform local economies, there's got to be a lot more to broadband than just those two or three bullet points, right? Absolutely right. So where do we start? Let's let's just. I will tell you first of all what I did mention is is uh, in the last five years I spent a lot of time uh, working with the U.S. Conference of Mayors on a sort of uh, what we call a feature-oriented economic uh, growth strategy for American cities. They actually came to me, this is a few years ago, um, when I sort of in the early beginnings of my time at Cisco, and they said, we'd like your help. We know you guys, meaning the technology industry, are changing the rules of the game and in a lot of ways are upsetting the way we view our cities. So help us figure out how to ensure the viability of American cities in 20 years. It's a fun project. You know, if they ask me how to solve the recession, that's a whole different issue. It's the shorter-term stuff is a lot harder to deal with in some respects than helping people figure out the longer-term stuff. But, but So I've been spending a lot of time on this, and I have to tell you that there's just an incredible amount of fuzzy thinking on the part of a lot of economic development people. First of all, uh, a lot of folks, folks say, they look at the statistics, and there have been a variety of studies that show that communities have, that have broadband, um, on average, um, have greater, economic, uh, greater um, wealth in the community, that people do better, they, you know, they make more money. That varies, um, and there are some kinds of communities that actually uh, have a lot more benefit than others. We can talk about that a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. But then they turn around and they say, well, we're going to use broadband and we're going to um, say, okay, broadband helps us win the economic competitive competition game of the industrial era. In other words, we're going to move, we're going to try to get some big company and move lots of jobs here. 
when a lot of the big companies have a large percentage of their workforce um, not in single locations. I think one of the most, two of the most interesting statistics that I've come across recently is, is one is that I think at this point, 40% of the employees who work for IBM don't work in a facility that has IBM's name on the door. Uh, they're, they're using the broadband capabilities they have um, on the road, from home, from client offices. Uh, they're not in that IBM facility. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's misleading to think that somehow or other, you know, the way you used to get a big factory to move in the industrial age, you can do the same thing now. Uh, the other interesting statistic, and this is also a reflection of the same phenomenon of people being able to work remotely now, is um, uh, one of the big real estate companies did a survey of office space. And what they found is that it used to be, on average, you would have to assume, I think you needed something like 250 square feet of space per employee. That's not, that's not the size of the office. That's including all the common areas and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. They're now, they're, they're, they said now, in, in, in the year 2014, uh, it's down to 50 square feet per employee. And the reason for that is even in white-collar employment, in office employment, uh, people aren't in the offices as much anymore. Uh, you know, they, they, every once in a while they need a place to sit down, but a lot of time, because of broadband internet connections, uh, they can do their work anywhere. Uh, and so they're not in an office. Meanwhile, you still have economic developers hoping to have some big ribbon cutting where they're going to say, hey, we brought in 1,200 jobs here. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so one of the things that, that I try to do with the Conference of Mayors uh, is to get them to think about well, what does economic growth mean in the 21st century in a broadband era? Um, you know, it, 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 it really the focus shouldn't necessarily be the size of the companies that might have a postal address in your city, uh, but rather um, how much money uh, your residents have in their pockets. How well are they doing? Um, because a lot of them can actually work remotely if you have broadband, um, and they can make a better living than they used to be able to. Uh, and, um, and and they're better off, and that's an economic growth strategy as much as trying to bring in a new factory. So, so the bottom line then is that um, we need, starting with the economic development world, a new way of thinking because we tend to think in conventional terms, in essence, like yesteryear. We, we, we are still fighting the last war, if I can use that analogy. And if I accept that for economic development, then it's probably the same if I look at broadband as a way to improve education or health care or even local government efficiency. The first step is to, tra- is, is to put conventional thinking on a shelf and truly look outside the box. Absolutely. You, I mean, uh, and I can give you a historical analogy. We're still talking about horseless carriages when we ought to be speaking about cars. <laughs> Someone the other day, a couple of days ago, brought that same analogy up that we talk about things in the con. We, we need a metaphor, but we need a modern metaphor, and we're still kind of trying to use the highway, and we're trying to use, you know, in essence, the the, the, the horse's carriage when we're kind of beyond that. Um, right. What kinds of things have you used or have seen used that reflects this new way of thinking? Well, I think one of the one of the obvious things about broadband is that you know what it does to communications, um, and and you know we've talked about this for years, and, and to some degree this has gone out of fashion, but it's still true, and that is broadband destroys distance. Uh, it makes it possible for people who used to be distant to uh, you know to communicate, and so. What, the, the way I try to, to deal with this is actually almost turn this thing on, on its head and tell people, think about living in one huge virtual city where it's easy to find other people you might want to work with or, or be entertained with or whatever. Um, and uh, instead of the kind of barriers that you think that the distance is, is held up in the past. Um, so, so, you know, I, and I haven't, I'm not sure that that's the best uh, I can give you lots of examples of, of, of the way this kind of thing can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot of my, a lot of my presentations for ICF really show how different communities have done this sort of thing in, 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 in strange ways. 
Well, well let's, uh, take a, let's take a couple of examples. Uh, what kinds of stuff have you talked about in those presentations? So, well, um, I have, uh, well, let's, let's talk with, with urban stuff because we were just talking about cities. It is, uh, uh, the, this communications revolution has already had an impact in a lot of ways, and one of my classic examples is Wall Street. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk in local government about clusters, which is actually, uh, we can at some point go into this, but the whole cluster theory is one that's really um, not holding as much weight as it used to. And the classic example, this is Wall Street. The, the New York Stock Exchange has lost a tremendous amount of market share in the trading of securities. Uh, one of the examples that I love is they've lost it to something called the BATS Exchange. The BATS Exchange is headquartered in Lenexa, Kansas which is about 14 miles, I think, out of Kansas City, Kansas. And, and, and no offense to anybody in Kansas City, in the Kansas City metro area, uh, or Kansas City, Kansas, but nobody ever grew up thinking that was a center of high finance. Um, hmm. and, and, and because of the capabilities of uh, broadband, they can run now a stock exchange uh, that uh, has taken, I think it's uh, last I looked, uh, has 12% or, or higher uh, of uh, market share uh, in training of uh, securities. Um, and things have gotten so bad, not bad if you want to look at it that way, I guess, but so it has changed so much uh, that the floor of the stock exchange is actually really not the center of the action. It's the computer networks uh, where these things are happening. And so this is wonderful story that appeared in the New York Times. I think it was about, uh, or it's actually, yeah, two years ago. The, the New York Stock Exchange has actually said that they have made available their floor as party spaces. Really? <laughs> it was an article in the Associated <laughs> Press. What do, you, what do you do with the Cathedral of Capitalism when it becomes antiquated? You turn it into New York's best party space. And I just... <laughs> I've actually been to parties there. Actually, it's, it's really is cool, but it's but you know, but it, it, it's cool way in the way that it, it's cool in the way that we also like to you know go to parties in the old uh, mansions along the Hudson River of the Gilded Age. Uh, you know, uh, gazillionaires. Uh, it's it's not the way people live today, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so you know you see that that's that's the urban kind of thing that people in the cities have to have to realize. Even even something as uh, as, as solid and monstrous as Wall Street it has um, been affected by this, but then you take the rural areas, um, and 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 what, one of the examples that I use is is a little town called Ten Sleep, Wyoming. I don't know if you've heard about this at all. No. Um, there's a company out there uh, called Illusion Technology, which basically is in the business of teaching tens of thousands of Asian students English virtually. And, and they have hired, um, it looks like, uh, from what I've seen, mostly women, but they've hired uh, residents of rural Wyoming and a bunch of little towns, some working out of home, some working in offices, um, who teach students in Asia, English, and it's conversational. It's as if they're in the classroom, but it's, you know, it's distance learning. Um, and, um, and they can do this because that community, that area, has broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, and they've been growing, um, you know, by leaps and bounds. Um, uh, they've been enormously successful. Uh, these are good-paying jobs in rural areas. And, and uh, you know, this is not the kind of thing you would have expected. You would have thought this is something that would be done in San Francisco or New York. It doesn't have to be. It can be done anywhere. In fact, in some respects, um, the Asian students are much happier about having their teachers of English come from a place like Wyoming, which speaks what is in theory unaccented English <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. compared to what they might get from New York or California. Um, and so you, you see examples like this, and, and there are others that are even not even tech-based. Um, I think you've, you probably were aware of uh, the Nova Scotia rural broadband effort um, that's been a project over the last couple of years. I think they're about 99% complete now. Mm-hmm. Um, Nova Scotia, Canada, and Nova Scotia is another place. It's a beautiful place during the summer, but it's you know in, up there in the North Atlantic, and it's pretty remote. Uh, and but they brought broadband there, and all of a sudden, they um, they're not connected to the world. So these these are small you know agricultural uh, fishermen communities, whatever. This is you know these are this is not centers of, of high industry, and even by Nova Scotia standards. 
and, and, and they have wonderful stories. They're actually available. A lot of these stories are available on, on the web for you to see. But uh, one of my favorites, because it's so low-tech, is a woman um, and her husband. Um, he is a lobsterman. And mm-hmm. in the family, her job was to knit together the lobster bait bags. And, you know, along comes broadband, and she says, okay, I don't know. These people tell me I can do this e-commerce thing, so I'll try it. Um, <laughs> and she figured, well, maybe there's some lobsterman somewhere else who doesn't have a wife who does this kind of thing. Uh, and, and it became enormously successful. She did, in fact, sell it to the market that she intended, and they made a lot more money, and they actually were hiring, if you will, local people uh, to help with the business. Uh, but it even had unexpected consequences, which is what happens when a community has broadband. So uh, apparently, by chance, I guess, um, but the, uh, the opportunity is there because of the broadband, there was a store in New York City on Madison Avenue uh, that sells to young fashionistas, um, and she saw this and she said, these would make delightful night bags for my customers. And so this woman in rural Nova Scotia, because she had broadband, was then able to sell a few hundred of these a year as bags for young, fashionable women in New York City. And there have been stories like this, I believe, for the last 10 years. Absolutely. um, You know, once the network is there, then, then all of a sudden these uses that hadn't been thought of which basically says they have not been planned for, uh, they, just, they just happen. And, and in some respects, it may be a disservice by those of us in the industry that, that give the impression that everything has to be planned, that we're, we're, all we're doing is we're feeding into that industrial age thinking <clears throat> by telling people, you've got to have this plan, you've got to have this, you've got to have that, where I've heard some speakers at different conferences say, you know, you just got to build this thing and trust that that um, the people will find the solutions that make sense, and from that, positive economic and monetary things will will happen. Yeah, I think the surprises are even among the people who re- who you think really have the answers. I remember having a conversation with Mayor Littlefield in Chattanooga about the Gigabit Network, and mm-hmm. he said he was. You know, there's a lot of planning on this, and, 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 but he said he was surprised by some of the uses. So, for example, one of the, the, the customers, you know, he's, one of the customers for a full gigabit connection, uh, you know, were, was the community of radiologists in Chattanooga. And he said, I already thought they did teleradiology. I'm reading all these stories about this. And he said, but we found out they actually, they sort of do it, you know, if there's something really obvious, uh, they can see it. Um, but when Gigabit came along, they now actually get the radiological data uncompressed. And that made all the difference in the world. So if you're a radiologist and you worry about missing something, and now you actually have exactly the same data that, that you would have gotten in your office, you can do it from home, and it's worth the money mm-hmm. to them. Whereas in the past, with not, not having broadband, they really couldn't depend on that. They actually had to go to the office for that final check on the data. Right. Uh, and so right. You don't, you know, yeah, sure, you know, now you hear the story, okay, next time it's a town does this, they'll, they'll figure out, okay, we can go there and do that with radiologists too, but, but the reality is uh, um, you, you don't always know what the applications are. And in some respects, it's not so much that the, the government or the community leaders who are pushing broadband need to know all the actual applications ahead of time, but they need to understand the fundamentals, that this is enabling people to communicate and to collaborate and they need to do what they can to ensure that that happens. Uh, A lot of times when I talk about broadband, I actually tie it in with uh, work on innovation. And the reason for that is that I'm convinced that broadband will facilitate innovation. Because if you think about how innovation really happens, it's not, uh, you know, some lone genius sitting under an apple tree somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, It's a social act. Uh, People build on other people's work and ideas and if you can have the people in your community through broadband get in the stream of those new ideas, they'll be the next one to come up with that improvement that takes it to the next level and creates new economic opportunity and a better life for people. You can't pinpoint innovation. You can't, you know, if, if you knew what the innovation was, it wouldn't be an innovation anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what you can very, do... Very true. Very true. 
But what you can do is understand what it will take to accelerate innovation uh, and how, how to use broadband for that, and that's really the trick. So basically you can't predict innovation, but you can facilitate innovation. Would that be a right. good summary? Right, exactly. Yes. So one of the things, and I want to make sure I, we touch on this because we had brought this up uh, before the show went live, and that is the issue of um, – if, if you look at your average conference, and I have you know, done a number of presentations by webinar and getting ready to do actually a series of workshops that, that previously I had done in, in person, right? And so you know, I got these folks saying, well, we should do this online. And I go to the sponsors or potential sponsors and say, hey, you know, I'm going to do this network or this, uh, you know, this workshop online. It's going to be just like the, you know, the regular uh, workshop, except for you don't have to travel anywhere, you know, you being the sponsor, you being the, the participants. And then the sponsors start pushing back saying, but we can't, you know, we can't, you know, shake people's hands. We can't look them in the eye. We don't have those one-on-one sort of side conversations that happen at a workshop or a conference. Um, and, and this is a real fear for them. It's a worry for me. But you don't see it quite that way, you, you see it kind of differently. I do. Um, and, and partly, uh, you know, it's sort of looking at general trends and, and sort of tracking, for example, the history of telephone usage and, and how people are doing things. Uh, I mean, even the kind of thing we're doing today, just you and me, I mean, in the past, we would have had to go to the same studio to do this. Um, and, and I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some of it's technological. We don't quite, we don't have ubiquitous broadband. Uh, we don't have all the software we need that makes it transparent to people, uh, and we don't have all of the, the sort of cultural shift that makes it an acceptable way of doing business. Um, so, you know, those are things that, you know, will be overcome just with a matter of time. Um, but I have to tell you, my own experience uh, has been quite positive about this. You know, you've probably heard of Cisco Telepresence, which is the high-end immersive video conferencing that Cisco sells. So when I was at the company, we'd use this a lot. Um, and almost everybody there who used this has a story similar to this. One day I happened to be having a four-hour conversation with a bunch of people in Germany. Uh, it was actually about the future of libraries in the Internet age, but the subject isn't really important for this. We, when we, we went on, we had a conversation. It was great. You know, you'd see each other in high definition, very high definition, and you're sitting across what looks like a conference table. And people completely forgot that this was virtual. So at the end of the meeting, one of the Germans got up and put his hand out almost for an instant, and he realized that, no, I wasn't actually in the room for me to shake his hand. Whoa. That's <laughs> different. <And> everybody, <laughs> everybody at Cisco who's done extensive um, telepresence work um, you know, has had a similar story of this kind. Now, you know, it's only going to get better frankly, um, and, um, uh, you know, I mean, Cisco went to a lot of effort to make sure this happened. I mean, I, you know, some of it is actually not even technological. So the, all the telepresence rooms, I don't think this is true as much anymore, but when they started, all the telepresence rooms had the same paint color, the same size, the same placement of cameras, so it really looked like an identical other half of the room. Um, so, there, you know, there's some things that will make it better, make it make it more feel more like, um, you know, a regular place. By the way, to your point about side conversations, um, one of the things that I'm doing with the Intelligent Community Forum, as you know, is, is leading up their effort on what we call the rural imperative, and, and we're hoping to have a worldwide uh, conference on this subject, but it's going to be virtual. And so we've looked at a, a number of the software products that are out there to run virtual meetings. Um, they do now provide a mechanism for people to have those side conversations, uh, even with uh, exhibitors, um, and, and you can, if and if the exhibitors willing to, uh, they can support uh, video conferencing, and you can actually have, you know, you can't touch the person yet, but you can have a face-to-face, look them in the eye, uh, kind of conversation, um, show them things the same way you would if you were in, if somebody was in a booth. Uh, it's getting pretty close. Not quite there yet, and it, needs, it still needs a lot of improvement, but um, it's a lot closer than I think a lot of people realize. So then is telepresence, you know, because I've, I've heard the term used before, is it basically the collection of technologies that facilitate a live experience? I mean, if I were to yes. try to sum up the word, okay. 
Yeah, it's really an attempt to, to uh, it, not only collecting those technologies, but to uh, to organize them in a way that it gives you the sense that you are actually immersed in the same environment as everybody else uh, that you're talking to. Well, is that going to be expensive? <laughs> uh, it has I mean, been. Um, it, it, and that's why it will be expensive in the in the front end, and eventually it'll get you know less expensive as you go forward. But right, exactly. So so it is. It has been expensive. I mean, it's uh, you know I'm not quite sure what the current pricing is, but it's um, uh, you know it's a couple hundred thousand dollars to do the full fledged um, telepresence room in a corporation. Uh, for the corporations, that's certainly acceptable. They can easily uh, use up that kind of money with travel. Um, you know, it's obviously not something you're going to have in your home yet. But you begin to see this now. I mean, you know, I mean, Google's put a lot of effort into Hangouts, um, and and FaceTime is you know used. It's 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 not quite the same, um, but it, it, the cost of the stuff is is coming down dramatically. I mean, even things. The, the one of the things, and you probably may have seen this from the entertainment industry, is these holographic-like, um, you know, presentations where somebody's really not there, but they're delivered by something that looks like a holograph. Right. Uh, well, I have made that famous. Well, and I have I have a great example from Black Eyed Peas uh, because it's really hard for people to know who was real and who's not. Right. Um, and, and, and and you know you got you you know there's this kind of thing, and, and the price of that, which used to be enormously expensive, has come down now. Uh, dramatically, so that the, the people are now beginning to use that in small conference rooms as a mechanism for doing video conferencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so you know clearly is you know the technology industry always starts out with these things being expensive, but the prices get knocked down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. We'll see that. Now, you know, but you know, even now the quality Sorry, is sufficient. Even now, the quality is sufficient. We, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard of these stories and people, grandparents having you know dinner with the grandkids who are thousands uh-huh. of miles. Away. So, no. is the um, you know, if I look at these these products that are on the market, are they structured in such a way that the uh, I don't know the host or the owner or the conference originator is the entity that owns the software? But that software is being accessed by people with just you know everyday laptops and smartphones. It can be. There, that's one of the options. There are a lot of options. There are some companies that will also do this uh, as a hosted service. Um, there, are, it, 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 we haven't figured it out yet. It's that the industry is too new to understand what the dominant model is going to be yet, if there will be a dominant model. But yeah, all. All the options you can think of, somebody's trying. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's generally the way of the world with technology. Yeah, let, sure. let me ask this uh, this other question that's been bouncing around in my mind, and that is um, the potential or the worry about the technology eliminating jobs, particularly the lower end types of jobs. Like, for example, everyone is talking about you know the need to raise the minimum wage. And there was somewhere on Facebook this uh, meme or, or, or photo that had kind of bounced around, which was a picture of the device. And I've only seen these used in Europe, and they may be in the U.S. or whatever. But basically, the customer can order everything and all their condiments and all this other kind of stuff at a McDonald's uh, for their order. And so the gist of the photo and the, and the, the message was, Minimum wage goes to $15 an hour, meet your replacement worker. That basically the technology will um, force the, re- the replacement of a lot of, a lot of folks. I think this is a real concern with many aspects of broadband technology where on the one hand you are creating entrepreneurs and new ways of doing business for people that would be left out of the mainstream. And then on the other hand, you will take away uh, jobs and opportunities by people in the mainstream. How do you view that um, that that type so, of war? I I I actually um, I'm very sympathetic to raising the minimum wage and a lot of other things. And the reason why, uh, well, one reason why is if you look at this historically, we're in one of these major socioeconomic shifts um, when. People came off the farm and went into cities to work in factories. 
It was awful. I mean, you read, I mean, you know, Charles Dickens, I mean, we all studied Charles Dickens in Mm -hmm. school. I mean, but that's just an example of the kind of awful life that people who came off the farm had to put up with in those cities. And it took quite a few decades before the government and society as a whole realized, hey, we have a responsibility here. We need to find a way of um, making sure that people just sort of subsist in in slums and, and, and to do something about improving their situation in life because of this transition in which we basically had to kick them off the farm and they come to cities where there may or may not be jobs for them. I think we're in that same kind of change. Um, and we really need to think about what are the implications and you know what what can we be doing to help people make that transition um, and and it's and, and it's a transition that's affecting people now you know you mentioned we mentioned briefly education before there's an awful lot of money going into k to twelve and into broadband in k to twelve um, and I've been one of the people who've been pounding the drum about adult education it's the adults who actually are the ones who are forgotten in this process. Uh, and and broadband, if it's available, and and the resources on the internet actually make it possible for adults to be able to learn the skills that they need. Um, but somebody's got to put some attention to that. It's got to help organize it for them, and all that sort of stuff. That's it, not really happening as much as increases in investment and um, and improving standards in K to 12 is happening. You know, we we can't just sort of say anybody who's you know above the age of 21 will forget about them. They're on their own, and we'll just focus on the younger people. Mm-hmm. I, I think well, there's a there's a whole bunch of things we need to be thinking about because this is going to be a major um, uh, change. Um, even the even jobs, you know, where the, some economists realize that the way we go about measuring the economy um, is really inappropriate for the kind of economy we have now because of the changes that broadband has made. Uh, and will continue to make. Uh, you know, we're looking we're looking at industrial production. That's what we're measuring. Uh, you know, and instead of the kinds of things that are happening over these broadband networks, uh, and um, you know, in thinking about jobs instead of thinking about well, how do people earn a living, which may be from multiple jobs and not necessarily mm-hmm. work hours a week, but they may have multiple sources of income uh, that the uh, the broadband uh, allows them to to do. So it's uh, it's again, we we really need to think about what the fundamentals are, and then think about well, how is this? How are people going to be affected? Maybe even hurt by these changes? What can we do to change that and ameliorate it? So then, so it, you know, it's not. We shouldn't have to wait decades, the same way we did with the industrial revolution, before we say, hey, we got a responsibility here. We need to do something. So then, if I follow that logic then is the way that communities, cities, states should prepare for uh, a shift in, an upward shift in the minimum wage is to start rethinking what is a job, what is, um, uh, you know, what is employment opportunity, you know, do we, do we stop looking at it from a, you know, what is a wage? Maybe it comes down to that fundamental that we need to rethink. Well, what is a wage? Because we have always thought about it very linearly, right? We that we you go to a job, you punch a time clock, you work some number of hours, and you get compensated some hourly wage. But, but the funny thing is, but Craig, the funny thing is, we haven't always thought of it that way. We've only thought about that since the 19th century when people started going to factories. That's not the way most people lived before. And yeah. and and I. And I think that 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 now in this post post industrial era where broadband networks are dominating, you're absolutely right. We need to think about not so much a job, whatever that might mean, a nine to five thing that you go to, but how do people? How can people earn a living? You know, how can they get the kind of resources they need, um, and and, um, and the kind of skills they need in order to get those resources, and and and. And, and how can we use these broadband networks to make sure that each individual's combination of talents and temperament um, are used optimally by by society and the economy? You know, we're not doing any of that kind of stuff now. I mean, you think about the, you know, I mentioned before the New York Stock Exchange and, and the Bass Exchange and so forth. The, the financial industry has used these broadband networks to tremendous effect um, in making financial markets efficient. 
The labor market, though, has really not improved its efficiency. It, it just There's so much of a mismatch between what a lot of people are doing and what they could be doing to make themselves more money um, and, and have a more satisfying work experience. So, you know, we're still, you know, have a lot to, uh, a lot ahead of us in order to make this transition palatable to a lot of folks. And this bottom line, we've got about five minutes, but this bottom line is really a lot of what um, ICF is about, right, is trying to... Um, put these kinds of conversations on the table before communities so that people do a new kind of thinking, right? Absolutely. This is, and, this is how, and, and this is how ICF celebrates those communities that have done this sort of thinking and have been successful for their residents. And, and that's one of the reasons we're going into the rural communities now, too, because uh, if I can just uh, take a, a minute to talk about the, the rural imperative, one of the things we realize is that in a lot of ways, uh, the the cities have come out okay. The better, the more modern ones have come out okay. The rural areas, as you well know, are suffering through population loss, through income loss, uh, even sometimes some social pathologies, uh, you know, like meth and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, uh, but if you think about it, uh, if there's broadband in those rural communities, they now can participate in the global economy. They they can overcome the isolation that they used to suffer from. Uh, and uh, and open up opportunities for people who live there. Uh, that's just extraordinary. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do is help those rural communities figure out how to do this, um, how to get broadband, uh, how to use it intelligently. Um, and, uh, and, and I know this sounds a little uh, counter uh, uh, to the conventional industri- corporate wisdom these days about everybody moving to cities, but, you know, those changes are going to happen in, the, in those rural communities will perhaps be the greatest beneficiaries of broadband. We've already begun to see this. There was some research coming out of Queen's University in Canada about this in which they found that the uh, rural communities with broadband had an incredible uh, increase uh, in the income of their residents, uh, much more uh, impact than in cities that adopted broadband. And we've seen this in other kind of studies as well along those lines. Mm-hmm. So which broadband is actually meeting its promise uh, in those areas that adopt it. But are there, do we have enough documented evidence? I mean, we only have three minutes, but in that three minutes, do we have enough documented evidence to make that case forcefully that there is better results in the No, we don't have enough, but we do have a lot. Uh, I will point out, I'll point out, for example, everybody takes for granted now how important the interstate highway system was to uh, the development of the economy in the U.S., um, but the actual firm economic studies that prove that happened decades after the internet, uh, interstate, timer, uh, interstate highway system was built. Um, so, yeah, a couple of decades from now, we'll have the firm proof that will convince the very last skeptic. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we have, there's, there's certainly enough uh, initial data from communities that are ahead of the game uh, to see that uh, there is that economic benefit there. So I know we only have two minutes left, but in brief, what is the top seven? Because that's where all this is leading to. Next week you're going to have the conference. Uh, There are top seven intelligent communities. Who are they? What are they? What's their purpose? Uh, The purpose, well, you know, a lot of times. So what happens is every year um, several hundred um, communities around the world uh, compete to be designated leading uh, intelligent communities. Um, Out of that, um, there's a selection of the top 21 um, and um, and then uh, from the 21, the, the seven most intelligent communities uh, in the world, uh, and and there's an ex- extensive um, jury evaluation of the information about them. There are site visits. There's all kinds of stuff. They get to present, if you will, their uh, their case uh, at the ICF summit that's happening next week, um, and then at the end of all that, the uh, number one winner uh, is announced. Uh, these are really the communities that other folks should be looking to, um, who are ahead of the game, who, under, who have um, proven uh, the value of broadband, uh, not just as a technology, but as community building, uh, as ways of making the experience of living in their community better for their residents. Um, and uh, you can see, you can go to the icfsummit.com uh, next week. Uh, you can see uh, some of the videos uh, from, the, from the event, um, look at the detailed histories uh, of the various communities that are in the top seven. 
uh, and also by that point, at the end of the week, you'll know who won the award for the top. I should point out, by the way, since as I said before, I think this is mostly an American audience, that by and large, uh, it's been communities outside the U.S. that have uh, won this award. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, we may not realize it, but the rest of the world is uh, uh, sees these things maybe with clearer eyes than we do, uh, or maybe you know they. That we're going to have to cut off. I'm I'm afraid. But Norm, right. thank you very much for being our guest and providing all this great information. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Good day. Good day. Bye-bye.